0: You see in these articles, complaints about two things, either that she's not given a substantive enough role Mm -hmm. or that she's given impossible tasks. Mm -hmm. And my question is like, how many tasks are on Biden's plate that aren't impossible? Welcome to The Lost Debate, unconventional media for the rest of us. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. And Corey, we took off Thursday for Veterans Day to celebrate the many veterans around this country, including Sam from our staff. Shout out to Sam. Yes, absolutely. But the country didn't take off. The polarization has only increased in the past few days. We have so many stories that have piled up. Where are we going to start?
1: Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about today, Ravi. Coming up, a fringe Black Lives Matter activist calls for violence while New York City Mayor-elect Eric Adams doesn't seem to be backing down. A new Pew Research poll says that voters are way more complicated than a two-party system. In fact, there are nine political categories. Where do American voters land? We're also going to talk about Kyle Rittenhouse, hero or villain? Robbie breaks down the major case that's dividing the country. And prices in America are way higher than they were last year. Is President Biden leading us towards 1970 stagflation? We'll have the answer for you, but it's a little complicated. But first things first, we want to talk about Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, It seems like there's a lot of friction in the White House right now between the Harris camps and the Biden camps. Uh, CNN has dedicated a lot of time reporting on this. Kamala's poll numbers are actually sitting around like 28%, way lower than Biden's. And it's like, what's really going on here? There seems to be this blame game between the two camps where a lot of people on Harris's side are saying that she hasn't been given the tools to really be able to succeed here.
0: Well, a few things just to put this in context, 28% is really low. Super low. It's lower than even Dick Cheney was. And so that's that's historic in yes. some ways. What's not historic is that the president and the vice president's camps aren't getting along. Mm-hmm. So if you look across history, you know, whether it was Eisenhower who hated Nixon, JFK and LBJ didn't get along. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Nixon wanted to fire his own vice president. Andrew Jackson threatened to kill his vice president. Sounds so like this Andrew is Jackson. this is something is almost an American tradition. Yeah. But particular here, I have a lot of experience sending people through the, the Harris camp. Mm -hmm. Uh, as a person who used to train staffers, but also have a lot of friends who've worked for her going all the way back to her days in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And one thing is clear is that dysfunction seems to follow her wherever she goes. Not everybody, but most people I've sent to go work for her complain of a lot of things that are coming out in this article. And that also came out in articles after her presidential campaign flamed out, which is that there's not not clear chains of command, mm-hmm. that there's poor working culture in her office, there's shifting priorities, that people are often confused about what she stands for, mm-hmm. and and that what she stands for may change by the day. And so those things seem to have been true for a long time in her career and seem to be true today. And what I find in this article is a lot of excuse making. Yeah. But this is somebody who's a heartbeat away from the presidency, and I think we have to ask for more from Vice President Harris because... You know, this is about leadership. Yeah, that's an interesting statement, heartbeat away
1: from the presidency, because I think a lot of people don't really understand what a vice president does. I mean, they're the president of the Senate. And so like in Kamala Harris's case, this is a very important position because we have a 50-50 split between Republicans and Democrats. So she has played a historic role in breaking a lot of ties in her first year. But there's also sort of kind of this narrative about vice presidents that that it's a do-nothing position that they don't really do much. And we've seen different levels of this. Like, you know, Dick Cheney played a very aggressive role in the Bush administration, whereas somebody like Dan Quayle, you know, was just Dan Quayle, just made a lot of gaffes. And so I feel like because of Biden's age and the unlikelihood that he'll run for a second term, Harris has to be stepping up to the plate to play a more aggressive role in this administration. And it doesn't seem like she's been able to do that so far. Granted, she was given some hard tasks. You know, I believe it was uh, immigration policy, dealing with you the know border the border crisis and everything like that. It's important to make the distinction that she wasn't even given any type of priorities about the actual border, but instead she was given diplomatic duties to talk to sort of kind of the countries in South America that were sending these caravans. That's a very difficult thing to be put on your plate. Not to mention she also has to deal with voting rights. and so And that's something she wanted to deal with, but there's been no movement on that as well. And so, it really does get it really does get down to this question of what type of vice president is she going to be and I feel like given you know the circumstances with Biden it has to be a bigger role than what she's playing so far.
0: Yeah, you see in these articles complaints about two things, either that she's not given a substantive enough role mm-hmm. or that she's given impossible tasks. Mm-hmm. And my question is like, what how many tasks is Biden are on Biden's plate that aren't impossible? Like, yeah. you know, solve global warming with Manchin in the Senate, pass anything with Manchin in the Senate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if you look at Biden's own experience as vice president, mm-hmm. he was given impossible tasks too. He was given, for instance, responsibility over the gun control oh, yeah. debate, which as we know is as obstinate a debate as anything. And so I think what I want to see is I want to see Harris get caught trying, which is, you know, she went down to the border mm-hmm. and people will complain, you know, mm-hmm. people who are involved in trying to solve the border crisis are quoted in this article as complaining about uh, the fact that they didn't see her again after that. Mm-hmm. They didn't hear from her. They didn't know what the follow up was going to be. And this article does a pretty good job of cataloging the, the various frustrations. And in the end, when you're in such a strong position of power, people need to see you trying more. And they're not going to want to hear excuses. And I think a lot of the excuses have to do with people saying that the criticism of her is unfair. Like Jimmy Kimmel says Mm -hmm. she basically has nothing to do and and compared it to a backup quarterback saying criticizing the backup, you know, is like, you know, they're sitting on the bench for a reason. But my point is there are things you need out of your backup quarterback, right? You need them to be ready to take the job if the quarterback gets hurt. You also need the quarterback to do really well in practice. Mm -hmm. You need some track record from that backup quarterback to say that this is somebody who can do the job of quarterback. Mm -hmm. And my question is those who support Harris, and I I was a supporter of the Biden-Harris ticket, Mm -hmm. but it was really hard to criticize either of them, including Harris. Mm -hmm. And my question to people has been over the years, what is her track record? What does she stand for? I think she was sold, if you go back to her DNC speech. My mother instilled in my sister
1: Maya and me the values that would chart the course of our lives. She raised us to be proud, strong black women. And she raised us to know and be proud of our Indian heritage.
0: Mm -hmm. And the way she talked about herself, but also the way Biden talked about her, she was sold based on her identity and not much more. If you think about what's the critical policy beliefs that she has, what's the story that she's telling about herself in this country. She was a law and order attorney general who then basically walked away from a lot of those policies Mm -hmm. when they became unpopular. Mm -hmm. And you can contrast to Obama who who ran a lot on his identity, but he had a singular issue that motivated a lot of people like me to support him in the primaries, which was the Iraq war. You can't point to that um, and say that Harris has this big issue, this big substantive set of beliefs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also to it's important to point out that as a vice president, she has a lot less experience in the Senate and with Congress. He's only in the Senate for like four years. And traditionally, most vice presidents have a lot of experience in Congress because that's what they're going to have to deal with the most. You know, Joe Biden had been in Congress for decades when he was chosen to be the vice president for Obama, for example. And, you know, most presidents are usually governors or something from an executive uh, standpoint. So it is it is an interesting thing. And then, like you said, when it comes to beliefs and what she stands for, I, you know, no one can really tell me what that is. I I remember one of the biggest points of hypocrisy with her was the fact that, like you said, she was a law and order DA in San Francisco, there was an uptick of prosecutions of low level marijuana crimes while she was the DA there. And yet she goes on The Breakfast Club when she's running for president and says, Have you ever smoked? I have. Okay. And I, and I inhale, inhale? I did inhale. inhale. (laughs) It was a long time ago. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I used to smoke weed. Oh, yeah, I used to do that. She even invoked her Jamaican heritage. She said, oh, yeah, half my family's Jamaican. So, of course, we smoked weed. And it's just like, what? Like, that was one of those moments where just the disingenuous nature came out. And it's like, we don't really know what you stand for. So how can we really support her? And that's where her presidential campaign fell apart because there was no real identity. And I mean, if she's thinking 2024... She's got to really figure out who she is and try to sell that to the public.
0: Yeah, and I'm sick of be- like any criticism of her and I'm sure there are sexist and racist Absolutely. 100%. absolutely. But that doesn't mean every criticism of her is that. I'm half Indian like she is. Yes. You would think I would want to see somebody like her succeed. I wrote speeches for Susan Rice, who is number two in the selection process, who's mm-hmm. another black woman who I've mm-hmm. supported ever since I've met her and would have been enthused to see as the vice president. Mm-hmm. Just because we have issues with Kamala Harris doesn't mean that they're inherently fall into this you know, like that that means that it's because of her identity. Mm -hmm. What I want to see is more than identity Mm -hmm. out of this candidacy. And I think in the end, my position here is if Biden remains this unpopular, if she remains this unpopular, Biden's not getting any younger. Mm -hmm. Harris is untested. I'm leaning towards at this point, an open primary. I think at this point, I would be excited to see a new selection process heading mm-hmm. into the next election. I know people are going to hate that, mm-hmm. but that, that could be what both what's best for the Democratic Party and for the country as a whole.
1: Yeah, we can't just give it to her just because she's the vice president. There has to be a vetting process. And I'll end this by saying this. There's two types of politicians in America. There are the types of politicians who have true convictions, true values. They run on those values. And for the most part, when they get elected, they fight on those values. And that makes up a very small amount of politicians. And then you have the crowd that just wants to climb that political ladder. And right now, I'm just not sure what Harris is and whether or not she's the ladder of those two groups. But moving on a little bit here into some New York City news that actually has wider implications. Um, Our mayor elect is having a little bit of a showdown with uh, an individual who claims to be associated with Black Lives Matter. Guy who calls himself Hawk Newsom, and uh, there's been a little bit of a a, a riff here over this use of uh, anti-crime units here in New York City. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So, as context, there's there's historically in New York been this thing called the Plainclothes Street Unit of mm-hmm. the NYPD, and we actually interviewed the incoming District Attorney for Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, last week, and he talks about this mm-hmm. issue because right? Alvin Bragg is against bringing back this unit, mm-hmm. Mayor Elect. Adams is for it. Mm-hmm. And there's just a whole history of complaints about this unit mm-hmm. uh, exceeding its authority and having uh, a culture of racism. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of valid criticisms of the unit, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of people who've bore the brunt of the increases in crime in New York, mm-hmm. want it to be replaced with something that is going to at least solve some of the problems it was solving, like getting guns off the street. Mm-hmm. And Adams has been explicit about the fact that he wants to bring back some form of this unit. And some activists, including Hawk Newsom, have said, if you bring back this unit, we're gonna call for violence. Wow. And uh, let's play a clip. This is Hawk Newsome talking about this issue.
1: If they think that they're going to go back to the old ways of policing, then we are going to take to the streets again. There will be riots, there will be fire, and there will be bloodshed.
0: All right. So this That's is a tough talk. Yeah, this is an activist uh, who has been prominent. I think how prominent he is today is, is really up for debate. Mm-hmm. Who's calling for violence if he doesn't get his way. Meanwhile, the democratically elected Mm -hmm. mayor-elect, who also won with sizable support from Mm -hmm. black and brown communities in the city, Mm -hmm. you have him pitted against an activist. Mm -hmm. Corey, where do you come out on this issue? I mean,
1: activist is a really loose term for a guy like this because of the fact that in doing my research, the main national leadership of Black Lives Matter has kind of disowned this guy. They've said, you know, he goes too far. And if you're going too far for BLM, which is somewhat of a radical organization, then there's something really problematic about your stance. And then calling for violence is never a smart thing to do, you know, when your whole goal is you want peace, right? Right. Like he wants peace for New York City. He wants peace for black and brown communities. Well, violence as a means to achieve peace is, it sounds like it would be the way to go but it's never the way to go.
0: Yeah, well, I I wish most more people believed that. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge that I think Eric Adams has and I have is that you just don't see enough people condemning these uh these types of comments yeah. on the left in mm-hmm. particular and you know Adams for instance called on other leaders to condemn Hawk Newsom mm-hmm. and doesn't seem to get a lot of takers. The New York Post has called prominent politicians like Tish James and and the governor Mm -hmm. to ask them to condemn these comments. And at least as of this recording, they haven't condemned those comments. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me of June of 2020, when Mm -hmm. there were peaceful protests going going on around the country that had really important, substantive things to say. Mm -hmm. And then you had riots happening at the same time. And so many people on the progressive side of, of politics, refused to condemn the violence that was happening. And even though that a lot of the people who are bearing the, the brunt of the violence are immigrants yeah. who own small businesses mm-hmm. and people who have to live in neighborhoods that are unsafe, but some people even went even further. Like Rolling Stone ran an article that says, you know, nine historical triumphs to make you rethink property destruction. GQ had an article <laughs> that said, why violent protests work. So uh-huh. you had like a lot of the media was it, not just looking the other way, but excusing the violence. Mm-hmm. And then you had Don Lemon, you know, Don Lemon, who recently is condemning the wokeness epidemic in our politics back then. He had, this is what he had to say. say. He said, our country started because of the Boston Tea Party riots. So he was basically saying our, our history is of riots and violence, uh, political violence, and therefore this is excusable. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who comes from a family that was very much involved in Gandhi's movement Mm -hmm. for peaceful protests Mm -hmm. in India to take back India, this is offensive to me. Like that this is, that there's only one way to go. And Mm -hmm. people lost their jobs about this. As we Mm talked about, David Shore, a democratic strategist, lost his job because he pushed back against Mm -hmm. this talk of violence as an effective means of protest. And so this is why this disturbs me, is that, you know, now, two years later, almost we're still not condemning violence.
1: Yeah, the Don Lemon quote is just a huge oversimplification of the American Revolution. But also too, yeah, I mean, Just my background, my grandfather, Mark Swift, Martin Luther King Jr., and their whole thing was pacifism and nonviolence. And there's always been this debate as to how much of that actually worked. But from that, we've got the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, desegregation in the South, which would not have come, I believe, if their movement had been associated with more violence. And my whole state with that, or I guess I should say my whole stance with that is that violence doesn't solve problems. You know, problems are usually the problems usually lead to violence, but violence doesn't solve the problems. It's the intelligent people and the rational people that come after the violence that have to solve the problem. And we saw that after World War II, we see that after every major revolution, there's these intelligent people, these more well-spoken people who have to actually come in and stabilize society because of the violence, not as a direct result of it, but because of it as far as like having to respond to it. And so with guys like Newsom, they're not gonna be the ones at the table that have to put the pieces back together. They're just the ones who start the fire. And a guy like Eric Adams, I have a lot of respect for him for even sitting down with Newsom and even, you know, opening this dialogue because most U.S. city mayors would not have done that. But a guy like Adams is going to have to be the one to actually put out the fires. And that's why I have a lot of respect for him uh, for that reason. But we want to move on to this really interesting Pew Research poll that we stumbled upon this past weekend. And it was just a really interesting thing because basically we've had a little bit of a problem here on The Lost Debate. Really trying to, because, you know, we're political eclectics and we're not right or left, but we're not necessarily centrist either. And so we've had a hard time trying to find the right terminology to really talk about who we're talking about when we talk about the far right or the far left. And this Pew Research poll really breaks down these different categories on the right and the left uh, in a very interesting way that makes it a lot easier to really define and pinpoint
0: who we're talking about. Yeah, they so they have these different groups, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read them out just because it might be interesting to the audience. There's flag and faith conservatives, committed conservatives, the populist right, the ambivalent right, stressed sideliners, the outsider left, democratic mainstays, establishment liberals, and the progressive left. And we're not going to define all of these groups. Yep. And if we're honest, there, you could probably have double or triple of these oh, yeah. of groups. This is yeah. just another way to slice it up. Mm-hmm. But... What's interesting is that there are tensions within each side. Mm-hmm. So, for example, within the right, there's the tension over what to think of Donald Trump and yeah. whether all ideas flow from him or not. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, distrust of corporations from some members of the right, like the populist right. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. you have certain committed conservatives who like corporations. And there's also divisions on how high taxes should be mm-hmm. and how how much immigration we should allow. And the left has its own divisions. And I think a lot of them come down to race, for example, mm-hmm. where how sweeping you want the changes in society to be to account for America's history and for the inequalities we see today. Uh, There's also differences on the size of government that people want to see within the left. So Mm. there are real divisions within each side. Yeah, what was so interesting to me about this is it breaks
1: down the percentage that these groups make up. And when you break it down by percentage, there's no group that has a real clear majority here. And I think that's why things are so divided. For instance, the the furthest right group, faith and flag conservatives, make up only 10%. Of voters, as you know, and then you look at the progressive left. You know what we what we think of when we talk about like the far, far left, the defund the police folks, the open border folks. They make up six percent of of the voting block, and so it really is one of those things where more people are to that center. And I think there's just not enough reflection of that uh, in our politics and with our elected officials. And one of the biggest groups, the second biggest group was the stress sideliners who really fall there in the middle. And I think that's a great way to define them as stress sideliners. They're the people who constantly hear the back and forth between the right and the left. And are just like, ah, man, can you guys just like get a grip, like figure out what it is that the problems are and figure out how to solve them. But what was also interesting is when it talked about the stress sideliners. These people aren't really politically active. Like they don't vote as much. They don't pay attention as much because they're really tuning out because it's just become so much of a war between these two sides.
0: Well, I think what's interesting is we, you and I have worked in democratic politics and we took this poll. I expected to come out as one of the democratic leaning groups. Yeah. But I didn't, and no, neither didn't. did you. No, I didn't uh, So what did you come out as? I took this poll. I took it late at night, so maybe it had something
1: to do with it. But I took this poll, and I ended up getting ambivalent right. Yeah, same. Yeah, you got ambivalent and right And let me well. read
0: for our listeners this. This is the definition of ambivalent right. And I have, I have a sense as to why it came out this way. Mm-hmm. But it says, we hold conservative views about the size of government, the economic system, and issues of race and gender but they are the only group on the political right in which majorities favor legal abortion and say marijuana should be legal for recreational medical use. They also hold distinct views, they're distinct in their views about Donald Trump within the right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. meaning they're less, much less likely to vote for him. Mm-hmm. Neither you or I voted for Donald Trump. But some of these things aren't true to me, but I think pars- well, at least where it came out for me is I'm skeptical of increasing the size of government without demonstrated evidence that we're going to do it effectively. And I think on race... I don't remember answering questions about gender, but I think on race, I think you and I are some of the views we just expressed in the previous segment potentially put us here but i've never viewed myself as a member of the right until no. i re- until i took this poll no and i think most of the people who comment on our page definitely don't view me yeah take that as, commenters. A, as a member uh, of the right but no i don't i'm sure they'll quiet down now not, no i bet it, they'll
1: think oh you're just lying about your results so we don't think you're you know a liberal but no i i think it's really weird i don't i feel like i have pretty progressive views when it comes to race and culture but yeah like when i hear these hawk newsome stories it's like yeah no settle down like you know it's you Let's have a a, a nuanced discussion and a measured approach because throwing bottles and and, and breaking windows and shit is not gonna solve anything. And
0: so yeah, I definitely so maybe I am ambivalent, right? I was expecting that to make us democratic mainstays. Because I think you and I were talking about this yesterday. I think both of our parents would be probably within that group. So my mom is a white woman Mm -hmm. and Staten Island and I imagine your mom is not a white woman in Staten Island. My
1: mom is not a white woman in Staten Island Yeah, but my mom has voted Democrat every election since Bill Clinton and she is a Democratic mainstay and the, the interesting thing about Democratic mainstays is it's not even sort of kind of a loyalty to the I- ideology. It's a loyalty to the party, the old school idea of the Democrat party being the party of the working class and the party of the people and that's just where and it's interesting because that is the group that the majority of older African American voters uh, fall in. They fall in the Democratic mainstay group and with 16% that's the the biggest group so this is a really interesting poll I, I i think we should you know tell all of our viewers to take this poll to see where you end up because you may think you're outside or left but you take this poll and you might just be ambivalent right so yeah so we'll we'll have to table that and i don't feel it.
0: ambivalent but i guess i guess i'm I am.
1: ambivalent about the fact that i'm ambivalent. <laughs> yeah. right? but you know it is what it is you know what's not ambivalent high prices we're going to talk a little bit about inflation coming up Why is shit so expensive these days? A gallon of gas is creeping closer to the price of a Hulu subscription. And beef is so expensive, rappers are actually getting along. According to Financial Times, U.S. consumer prices jumped in October at the fastest pace in three decades. Consumer prices are actually up 6.2% from last year. Why is this bad? Well, when prices go up this high, this fast, it degrades the value of your income. Oh, you got a 5% raise last year doesn't mean shit because your cost of living is now 6.2% higher. A lot of people are worried about this current round of inflation and whether or not we're heading towards what we saw in the 1970s and 80s. Back when prices rose by 13% from 1978 to 79, unemployment hit double digits and our economy faced stagflation. Now, the Biden administration and many left-leaning media outlets are saying inflation is really no big deal. The Times actually penned an article claiming that inflation was a good sign for our economy. Okay, yeah, but not a good sign for my freaking wallet. Conservatives are crying foul, placing the blame on President Biden and even calling Biden the new Jimmy Carter. But is that accurate? Is Joe Biden's inflation crisis as bad as it was under Carter? And was Carter even responsible for high inflation? My TikTok fans have dubbed me the CEO of history, so let me hit you with the hot facts. There are two main things leading to our current rate of high inflation. One, massive government spending that started under Trump to combat COVID-19, and that spending has continued under Biden. And two, supply chain shortages and high gas prices made worse by the Delta variant. Now, on the face of it, President Carter inherited very similar economic issues that mirror Biden's problems. For example... Carter inherited massive spending from both Presidents Nixon and Johnson, along with supply chain issues caused by a series of oil crises. But that's really where the similarities end. In fact, we should really compare the inflation we're seeing today to what Nixon faced nearly a decade earlier than Carter. Nixon inherited inflation at a rate of 6% in 1969, By the time he resigned, in shame, in 1974, inflation was at a rate of 12.3%. When Nixon first took office, he promised to raise Federal Reserve interest rates in order to combat inflation, but instead, he cut those rates, and that act, along with the 1973 oil crisis, led to runaway inflation that lasted throughout the 1970s. Nixon's actions actually mirrored those of President Trump. Trump also fought to keep federal interest rates low And this, along with massive government spending due to the COVID-19 pandemic, helped give us the highest prices that we see today. So Nixon caused inflation to rise due to massive spending and low Fed rates. And Trump basically did the exact same thing. Now, both Carter and Biden inherited huge, messy economies. And the perception is they both made inflation worse. But despite common perception, President Carter did more to fight inflation than any other president of his era. Carter actually had low spending while in office and he appointed Paul Volcker as chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, Volcker went on to raise interest rates, which at first made the economy worse. But eventually it led to a strong economic recovery in the 1980s. But by that time, Carter had long since left office and President Ronald Reagan gets most of the credit for the economy's rebound. Now, Biden, on the other hand, hasn't done much to stop inflation. Government spending under Biden has increased quite a bit. With the $1.9 trillion we spent on the American Rescue Plan, not to mention the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that just passed. Luckily for Biden, we're not yet near the levels of inflation we saw under Carter. And we haven't hit a period of stagflation. Now, that's when GDP is low, inflation is high, and unemployment is high. Under Carter, unemployment was in the double digits, while right now, unemployment is only at 4.6%. And we still have time to fix our economy and prevent stagflation from happening this time around. So how can we do that? How can we avoid another 70 style economic crisis? Here's what we should do. Number one, raise federal interest rates. I know that sucks at first because it makes it harder to purchase, you know, big things on credit like buying a new house or buying a new car. The reality is when federal interest rates are too low, too many people get new loans and this creates a higher supply of money in the economy which almost always leads to high inflation rates. Second solution, We don't need to pass massive government spending bills like Build Back Better. I'm sorry, I know the bill means well, but BBB would just add tons more to our national debt and further increase inflation. Remember, President Johnson actually sparked the inflation of the late 60s and early 70s with his Great Society programs. Now, we got a lot of great things for society out of those programs, but it also greatly increased our debt and inflation, mostly because this spending was followed by terrible monetary policy. Also, don't forget, we just injected trillions of dollars into our economy through infrastructure bills and COVID relief spending. At some point, we have to cut off the faucet. And the third thing we can do to decrease inflation is keep COVID under control to get our economy back on track. This means getting vaccinated if you're healthy enough to do so. This means wearing masks in extremely crowded areas. And it also means staring your ass at home if you feel sick. I know we are all sick of hearing those talking points. But taking the personal and social responsibility to keep COVID down would not only save lives, but that's not enough of an incentive for you. It would also prevent costly shutdowns and supply chain disruptions that greatly contribute to inflation. All this to say that right now, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government are gambling that the economy will get back to normal before we hit stagflation. They're banking on the fact that currently both job growth and the GDP are up. So they believe things like the infrastructure bill will do more good than harm when it comes to our economy. But we have to keep in mind that inflation hurts poor people a lot more than it hurts rich folks. A 40-cent increase in the price of bread is going to greatly affect a person only making $20,000 a year, but that will have a much smaller effect on someone making over $200,000 a year. So the left really needs to stop writing off inflation as if it doesn't matter at all, but the right needs to stop blaming it all on Biden when it's really more complicated than that let's call on our elected officials to adopt smarter monetary policies while we do our part to keep the economy running strong. Then, maybe, just maybe, we can deflate these high prices like real patriots. Like the New England patriots. Remember? I remember. So, Ravi, inflation. Sucks, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I think your point about how it affects people uh, lower down the economic ladder I think is really important because yeah. obviously like like the the increase of basic supplies like if you're, you know, super rich, it doesn't really affect your life that much. Yeah, like, you know, your gas prices on your private jet might be up, <laughs> but you have a lot of, you, you have a lot more flexibility than somebody who's living from paycheck to paycheck.
1: Exactly. And the Biden administration has been pretty dismissive of this whole inflation thing, you know, uh, Saki for instance when she said the whole thing about the you know, uh, people just need to lower their expectations, which I don't think With the, the thing, treadmill, thing. The treadmill thing, yeah, and everything like that. And it's just like, you know, you do need to take this serious because the core of their base are the working class and they're the ones getting hit with inflation the hardest.
0: Yeah, and and the treadmill thing, was, there's so many overlapping issues, right? Because there's this supply chain mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. that we've talked about before. And- for me, it's, the big question as you go through this history is like, what does a president have control over yeah, versus yeah. what they don't, right? And then when do those effects even come about? Like, yeah. As you're saying, sometimes something a president does doesn't actually affect inflation or the economy mm-hmm. until years later. Yeah, so absolutely. there's this weird Washington parlor game of who gets credit for yeah. what when often it's way more complicated than... Yeah literally who's president when these things are happening
1: yeah i think it just has to it just boils down to presidents need to just do the right thing at the right time and not worry so much about their place in history but what's going to actually help the country in the long term but um we'll keep an eye on inflation and hopefully it deflates like those balls did in the afc championship game coming up Kyle rittenhouse hero or villain ravi as the full scoop
0: What's actually happening? What's actually happening? So a funny thing is happening in this Kyle Rittenhouse case coverage. If you turn on left-wing media, they're calling him a villain. They can't imagine any world other than him being found guilty. If you turn on the right-wing media, they call him a hero, and they think this trial shouldn't even have been brought in the first place.
1: It's an indictment of the adults that didn't protect Kenosha, which made Kyle Rittenhouse get out there and protect his community. That's That's a good kid. That is the kind of kid who can grow up and have a moral core. This is the ultimate entitlement. You can insert yourself into a situation with a gun that you're not supposed to be carrying, kill two people, injure, and it is you are made to be a hero.
0: that brings us to what's actually happening, the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Now, as context, we talked about this two weeks ago at Lost Debate and a couple of things happened in that segment. This was before the trial started. Number one, I defended some of the decisions that the judge made arguing that they were in keeping with his history and we also talked about the fact that we thought even before the trial started that this was going to be a not guilty or a hung jury. Now, as I'm sitting here, the jury is out for deliberation, so I actually don't know what the outcome is going to be, but after watching this trial... I continue to believe that this is either going to be not guilty or a hung jury. And what I want to do is dive into this case and say what was in front of the jury and what were some of the key questions they were asking so that when this jury verdict comes back, you can have an objective take, or at least my version of an objective take, as to what were the key questions. Was the jury correct in its assessment? Was there bias, et cetera, within the case itself, not in the larger culture wars happening outside of this case? So, what I'm going to do is walk you through some of the key aspects here. So, let's get started. Now, a little bit of context here. Number one, the jury doesn't know what you know. uh, And you might not even know what you know. I'll admit that there are some things that I've gotten wrong even on the show about this case, and we've had to correct it. And there are certain things that I had a bias about because I consume certain kinds of media and you may be the same. There's also certain things that you may know to be true, but that the judge is excluded. So there's a big debate about whether Rittenhouse was a member of the Proud Boys or not, and whether he used white power symbols and certain videos that he took before this trial, where he talks about using guns for various purposes, that stuff has all been excluded. And the judge also excluded the criminal history of some of the people he shot and their history with mental illness. And so this judge has excluded a lot of things that you may think you know or you know, a lot of the context about what was happening. But the jury has a lot of context about what was happening that night. So the judge did allow evidence of what Rittenhouse was doing that night, what the people he shot were doing that night. And I think so much of this case is going to come down to what this, who this jury is, and whether they think it's acceptable to be a vigilante, whether they think it's acceptable to protest or riot in the ways that the people he shot were. And so unfortunately, although I'm going to analyze this as an objective legal manner to the best of my ability, this jury is made up of human beings that who could be as polarized as we are. It's also important to note that this is a jury that is almost all white people, and we don't know their political uh, background. So. You know, people who are skeptical of Rittenhouse are going to say that this is a cooked jury against them. People who are pro-Rittenhouse are going to say, we don't know their politics of these people. We may know their race. And Rittenhouse shot, he didn't shoot black people, so it's not relevant what the race of the jury is, et cetera. I'm not going to get into that debate. But just to say that these are human beings, and if you watch any criminal trials, you go back to the OJ case, so much of these trials are decided in who is selected in the jury. And that is a whole different explainer. Uh, And I'm not going to get into that right now. As we get into the facts of this case, the Wisconsin law here in a case of self-defense, which is what this case is about, that's the defense that Rittenhouse is putting on. It says that you are allowed to use deadly force in self-defense if, number one, the defendant believes that force is necessary in order to prevent imminent threat. So that's number one. Do you believe that force is necessary to prevent imminent threat? Number two is, was the threat your belief in that threat reasonable under the circumstances. There's an exception to this, but basically that means, do you believe that there's a threat to you and is your belief reasonable? Those are the two questions we're going to be asking as we go through these cases. Now, uh, it's important to note that the burden of proof is on the prosecution to show that those beliefs were not justified because this is a beyond the reasonable doubt case. And so that's a very high burden of proof. So I'm going to go through the three people who were shot here. And I'm going to start with Joseph Rosenbaum. And so Joseph Rosenbaum is a, was a 36-year-old man who was shot to death by Rittenhouse. And the background here is that Rittenhouse clashed with a crowd that was gathered near a car dealership that Rittenhouse was claiming that he was defending. And Rosenbaum, who did not have a gun, threw a plastic bag at Rittenhouse and missed. And then Rosenbaum chased Rittenhouse across the parking lot and closed the distance between the two of them. And that's where the video picks up that we have, uh, access to. So, uh, what you see is Rosenbaum chasing Rittenhouse and Rittenhouse turning his head briefly after hearing gunfire that wasn't Rosenbaum's gunfire and wasn't Rittenhouse's gunfire It's like extraneous gunfire. And when Rittenhouse turned his head back to Rosenbaum, he shot Rosenbaum four times. Now Rittenhouse testifies that Rosenbaum grabbed his gun and you could watch this video clip and determine for yourself. It's very hard to tell from this video. Uh, There is a witness who's a journalist for the Daily Caller who testified that Rosenbaum lunged for the rifle. That is a fact that the jury is either gonna, they're gonna weigh the witness testimony and and have to determine whether it was credible or not, because there is not any video evidence that says one way or another whether uh, Rosenbaum lunged for that rifle. The jury may decide that it is not even relevant, that just the fact that Rosenbaum was chasing him was enough to show imminent threat. So what are Rittenhouse's lawyers saying? Well, they're saying that the first shot made Rittenhouse think that he was under attack. So this extraneous shot made Rittenhouse feel like he was in threat of his life. The prosecution in its closing arguments made a big deal out of the fact that Rittenhouse under oath in his testimony uh, admitted that he knew Rosenbaum was unarmed. So those are the two competing claims there. There's also this big dispute that played out in closing arguments as well about the fact that the defense is claiming that Rosenbaum threatened Rittenhouse's life. The prosecution's pointing out that there's no video evidence of that threat. Uh, so that's another area the jury is just gonna have to decide who they find more credible. And the defense has a few things to hang their hat on for this Rosenbaum piece. One is that there was actually a state's witness, so a witness for the prosecution, who is a police detective who seems to agree that Rosenbaum came out of hiding to chase Rittenhouse, so sought after this moment. That's what that witness testified to. There was also a forensic psychologist who testified that Rittenhouse shot Rosenbaum at close range, within four feet, which would add, I think, some credence to the defense argument that Rittenhouse waited till the very last minute to open fire, um, and only when he thought that that Rosenbaum was close enough to cause harm. So that's what they're going to claim. Now that's one incident. This incident set off a whole different incident. So Rittenhouse then fled that scene. He left and was being chased down the street. And that's where we pick up with like the key footage, I think in this case. And uh, I'm going to walk you through this footage. For those of you are on podcast, I'm going to try to explain this to the best of my ability, but the best way to to see what I'm up to here is to go to our YouTube page, but I'm going to try to explain this to the best of my ability. For those of you on YouTube, we're going we're gonna to watch this video in slow motion. So the context here is that a crowd is chasing Rittenhouse minutes after the Rosenbaum incident. And we're going to pick up where Rittenhouse has stumbled to the ground. And we put a white circle for those of you following on video around Rittenhouse. This is Rittenhouse who's on the floor as a crowd is kind of converging on him. And the key questions we're going to have to ask ourselves as we watch these events play out is, does Rittenhouse believe that he's under imminent threat of like grave bodily harm? And two, is Rittenhouse's belief reasonable? So keep those two questions in mind as we go through this. So you have Rittenhouse on the floor, white circle around him, people converging on him. What you could see is there's some people converging on him. And there's one man in particular in the middle of this shot who's getting closer and closer and closer. He basically is hovering over, jumping over Rittenhouse and Rittenhouse is on his back with his gun. And what you can't tell from the video is that Rittenhouse shoots, he misses this man, and then the man makes it beyond him, uh, and escapes. Now Rittenhouse in this video is looking at the man who he missed, who's running away while another man is approaching Rittenhouse. And this man, we have a red arrow over his head. This is Anthony Huber. And he is the second person that Rittenhouse shoots and kills. And this is really important because Huber does not have a gun, but as you will see, Huber has a skateboard. So let's watch. So Huber is approaching Rittenhouse. Now keep in mind, the defense made a few arguments here. Number one, Rittenhouse is looking away from Huber. So he doesn't have the full context of everything. Everything's happening really fast for Rittenhouse. Two, Huber, as you'll see, he has a skateboard in his hand. And you could see that it looks like he connects with Rittenhouse. That's what at least it looks like to my eyes. Now, the question is, how hard did he connect? Was it incidental contact? These are all things that have been playing out in this trial. And it's really hard for the jury to know for sure, or anybody, I think, to know other than Rittenhouse and this man, what really happened here. Now, the other thing the defense talked about is with the left hand, they're saying that Huber was reaching for the gun and grabbing the gun. I have my own feeling about it, but I want you to just ask yourself, what is, what most likely happened here? So you have Huber hovering over Rittenhouse. Now the skateboard's in his hand. You can't really see what's happening with the gun. Try to see if you can see any tugging or anything at that gun. You see that? That's a key moment right there. Is he tugging at the gun or is his arm just kind of out there as he's bracing himself to run away. I find it unclear. And remember, it's the prosecution's burden here. So, this is one of the many reasons why I think the prosecution is an uphill climb here in convincing this jury to convict, is because all the defense has to do is implant a reasonable doubt. And so, remember the two questions at this moment, does Rittenhouse feel like he is in imminent danger? Two, is that belief reasonable? Now, added drama here, before I even get into the rest of these events, Uh, the judge introduced a lesser charge in this case of Anthony Huber, and this two-part test that I have is a little bit more watered down in cases of this lesser charge. I'm not going to go into it, but basically, it's still the same questions. What was going through Kyle Rittenhouse's mind? Were his thoughts of his own danger reasonable or not? And so, we have the Anthony Huber case. Now, Huber appears to be trying to get away at some point here in this exchange, Huber gets shot in the chest and he eventually dies. All right. So Huber's on his way out. He's now been shot in the chest. Rittenhouse is pointing his gun towards Huber who's now fleeing, but isn't going to live much longer. Now you have another person entering the frame here, and this is Gage Grosskreutz. And this is the lone surviving person who was shot by Rittenhouse. And he actually took the stand. And we now, the one thing we have the benefit of in this situation that we're about to see with Gage Grosskraut is that we know what he describes after this. So you can compare what he says to what Rittenhouse says. So let's watch Gage Grosskrauts Now he's hovered down, because I think he knows a shot rang out. So you could see he's kind of reacting to that. If that's all he did, I don't think we'd even be talking about Gage Grosskraut. So you have Gage Grosskreutz now charging towards Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, this is a key moment in this trial because at this point, we have to ask what's going through Kyle Rittenhouse's head. So Grosskreutz is getting closer. One thing that came out in cross-examination and also came out that night is that Grosskreutz had a gun. And the big question was like, where was the gun? What was he trying to do with the gun? And in cross-examination, Gabe Grosskreutz admitted that uh, he was brandishing the gun as he was lunging towards Kyle Rittenhouse. It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, that he fired, right? Correct. And so you could see this play out here. Kyle Rittenhouse shoots him, you could see that right there, and he kind of melts away, and that's it, no more shots. That's it. You have three incidents, and the question you have to ask yourselves, I have my opinions about it, but you have to ask yourself, In any of these instances, are you able to say beyond a reasonable doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse did not believe that he was in danger and that that belief was not reasonable? And that's why I think this is a tough case. Watch those videos, slow them down on your own, ask yourself, can you say with any degree of certainty what was going through Kyle Rittenhouse's head and whether that was reasonable or not? Now, before I get to my conclusion, there's a lot said about this judge in this case, I'm not going to go into it. I talked about it two weeks ago, some of the, the stuff that this judge did. I don't think it's ultimately going to be relevant one way or another when it comes to the eventual outcome of this case, because I think in the end, I think the jury was is doing what we just did, which is kind of pushing everything else to the side and asking what happened in these critical seconds of that night. Now, my conclusion on this, after watching this trial, I continue to believe that either Rittenhouse is going to get acquitted uh, or there's going to be a hung jury. And even if he's found guilty, I don't have time to go into this now, but there was a critical moment in this trial where the defense moved for a mistrial. And I think what they were doing was preserving an objection for appeal. So even if they, Rittenhouse is found guilty, I think they have what they believe is reasonable grounds for an appeal. And I think they're not crazy for believing that, but I'm not going to go into that now. Now, my big question is what happens after this? And, you know, the legendary trial attorney, Clarence Darrow used to say these cases are not about the justice that happens within the courtroom, but also what happens outside of the courtroom. And that's my big question here is that you have this case of vigilante justice and just a city that's falling apart where protesters, uh, you can call them arsonists, looters, whatever, have guns destroying property seems like anarchy to me. And you have a kid with a military grade weapon, and they're they're having shootouts in the streets. And what I would beg of people, no matter what your politics are, is please abandon this culture war and ask yourself, how do we avoid these shootouts in the streets? How do we avoid this? And I think we can look to another case that's making its way through the justice system, which is the Ahmaud Arbery case, to say, all right, if you're conservative, you're a supporter of Renton House, you think that the media, the liberal media was biased on this Rittenhouse case. And I think there's a lot of justification to that I have, I've really worked through my own bias on this case and my own information sources. And I've gotten some things wrong about this case over the past year. And if that's true, and you're up in arms about that, I need you to then examine how the conservative right-wing media is looking at the Arbery case. And what I ask of you is after this case, there's going to be, I think, a blossoming of vigilante justice in this country. And a lot of it is going to be bad, like this Arbery case, where we're going to talk about it in the weeks ahead. But this was a case of people going after an innocent man, killing him in ways that seem very racist. And it's a jury in that case of also almost all white people. And I want you to ask, you've been so up in arms about the lack of due process that you believe that House is getting here. I want you to ask about whether the legal system is working for Ahmaud Arbery in that case. And if there's any bias in the right wing media, either because of their lack of coverage or the way they're covering that story, I want you to call that out with as much energy as you've been calling out the bullshit that you think is happening in House. But that's another case. My bottom line on this case, I think it's gonna be not guilty. I think it could be a mistrial. And I don't think it's because of any shenanigans by the judge. Uh, I just think this is a very tough case to prove. And I think there's a reasonable doubt here, but we'll see. You probably will know before this video even comes up.
1: Well, that's going to do it for us here today. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page and also follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. And thank you all. We will see you next time.